We are recording another episode of Zoomtown. I am your host, Travis Matier, and with me, as always, in these strange political times, my co-host, Tim Adams. Hello. We have an agenda. We're trying to you know, continue to do outlines of what we're going to be discussing. Um, quickly, I wanted to mention some upcoming candidate forums, since we are looking to focus on the, the local municipal elections. There is a city council thing tonight. Yeah. Oh, this, what's going on with that, since this will presumably be posted yes, today? Yes, Daniel Carlino mentioned this on Twitter. That's why I know about it. And it's going to be at the county courthouse in like the Sophie room, the Sophie Moray room, I believe. Is that the Dems thing or is that something else? I'm not entirely sure. I thought the Dems were having like their own candidate forum before the city club thing. I thought that's what he was. We'll look. We will, we will do, Tim is going to do some, some fact checking, um, or actually not fact checking, getting some specifics, some details. And the city club forum that Tim mentioned, that's coming up at least for the, the mayor candidates, the mayoral candidates on August 9th. And that is going to be super exciting. I was reading, uh, Greg Strandberg's, uh, he's putting his strategy and plan sort of out there on his blog for people to read. Um, he's doing a lot of preparation reading his notes and checking them twice. Um, I think he's going to be talking about who's naughty and who's not, not so nice, kind of. So some Yeah, I don't see any details on this. It just says Tuesday the 27th at 6 p.m., the county courthouse, the Sophie Moise Rooms City yep. Council candidate. So this is not the mayor. This is just the city council. Just city people. council candidates. Yeah, the mayor mayor candidates will have their option or their, their opportunity in, in August. So that's coming up. Isn't that crazy? We're three weeks away from ballots going out for that primary. That and is so. Are there any of the crazy. city wards that have primaries, or is it just the mayor race? There is. There's um one one city ward, one or two. We'll double check on that. Um, and then we're we're going to talk a lot about media coverage today. There's actually a whole kind of host of issues, um, both like traditional media, some blogs, and a lot of Twitter. We're going to get into into Twitter. Um, and what some of these organizations, nonprofits, the like, are are doing and saying on Twitter, and we are we I this morning was covering the organizations that were covering the Red Pill Festival, so we'll talk about that. Um, and let's see, West Broadway Island is reopening. I wanted to to discuss that and sort of some interactions with law enforcement I've had in the past week, including a story about meth. So I got a chance to see what crystal meth looked like on on Friday. Pretty exciting. Oh. Um, and then we're going to talk about some sarcasm and we're going to listen to a song. You haven't heard the song yet. No, uh, I made a, I made a, a song and we're going to, we're going to listen to it because we're playing around with our capacity to input other forms of, of media, um, into the, the, the mixing board that you do stuff over there with. Yeah, I think we're getting pretty close. We did some testing today. I think it's really helpful to be able to, uh, actually play a clip of something and then comment on it. So when, for example, the city uh, commission, or excuse me, the county commissioners were on KGVO this morning for their monthly talk. Ah, I keep just missing that. People tell them how much they hate them, and then telling them back how stupid they are. Yep. yep. Uh, we could actually take a clip of that and listen to it, oh, or, yeah. or a clip of our mayor saying how the suicide epidemic is because of Muslim women being bosses. So we'll see. Oh man, so that's uh, that's some some capacity building that we are doing here at Zoomtown, and then um, some some. Maybe look at the sort of Olympics, because you've been watching the Olympics. I have not, so I'm interested for you to tell me about some of the stuff. Sure. So we'll get into that. But um, right off the bat, let's go ahead and discuss... Um, well, we can go ahead and, I think, start with what I wrote today about the Red Pill Festival coverage, because it was really entertaining for me to see the Montana Human Rights Network go on a tweet storm yesterday. 
Um, you know, Montana Human Rights Network, there are lots of interactions I've been having in the last couple of months that I've been writing about and discussing on the podcast. And this one was especially just really exciting um, because the this is the number 18 out of their tweet storm. So a lot of tweets. Oh, my gosh. A lot of tweets. And this one says, next, comma, please pull together friends and neighbors to watch local boards like the health board, school board, library board, planning boards, and city councils, period. Anti-government groups are looking for opportunities to show up attack these boards with public comments now this is a nonprofit. the non-pro- montana human rights network is a nonprofit. yes it's a dark money nonprofit. we don't know who funds it and we know that they're active in politics i think you're i think you're missing the point that there is some danger in public comments i mean it sounds like these people are planning on using some democracy well, and w- public comments and when th- they're actively telling people that's terrifying uh, you need to get involved and run for things that's probably as close as you can be to a sort of like partisan politics uh, because they're not telling everyone that. They're yeah. not telling the people they disagree with that, but okay. The the Red Pill Festival is interesting. Uh, Monica Perez, um, who I talk about endlessly, her and, and Binkley do the prop report, the propaganda report. Um, she was at a festival kind of similar to this in Rapid City last week. And so I you know put out a tweet and trying to bring some attention to what's happening in Montana and, and speculated if, if the Montana Human Rights Network would have been so outraged at the, the Freedom Festival where where people come and, and they have conferences and they talk about stuff. Like, I mean, are we at a point where the topics that are being discussed is like conspiracy theories, um, which if you want to know how Daily Coast covered this this event in Montana, um, the Daily Coast link I put on the blog um, opens up with this, okay? The gathering of 200 or so people Saturday at the small Timber Towns Community Park sent the day reveling in a familiar array of far-right conspiracy theories and disinformation. <laughs> Semicolon, listen listen to this readout, okay? Semicolon, this, here's the readout, the list, okay? America is now under the control of a communist coup. That's in scare quotes, comma. Donald Trump was cheated out of the presidency, comma. The COVID, the COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic is a, quote, deep state operation intended to enslave the world. Vaccines are, quote, poison. And public schools indoctrinate children into Marxist beliefs, and the U.S. is not a democracy, but simply a republic. So these are the the many conspiracy topics that were covered um, at the scary white person conspiracy event um, in St. Regis called the Red Pill Festival. And the Daily Coast was there, as was Montana Human Rights Network, to raise the alarm, to raise the concern. It's scary. Aren't you scared? What does this sound like to you? What is this? Because this is one thing that really pisses me off, and I think yeah. it highlights the divide between the sort of bureaucracy class and regular people, is they look at us like we're under a microscope. They come to these things and like look at it like, oh, what are these crazy people doing? I remember there was an article a few years back in the New York Times where a guy came to Montana, and in his mind, because at that time we didn't have gay marriage and we didn't have, you know, you know 2004 it was constitutionally amendment, we couldn't have that. Uh, that he would have just people waiting behind trees to like jump on him because he was gay and just beat him up. And and he wrote this whole article about how su- pleasantly surprised he was that people in Montana did not beat him up and were very nice to him. Wow, and imagine like, that. Weird. What kind of stereotype do you have in your head of these people in these flyover states that, you know, you're better than us, you're more educated than us, you're you're better socially, you care about the environment and the earth more? And, and yet you come and people are just super polite and nice to you and, and you're surprised by it. Like what in your mind, if you believe something about somebody, that's justification to mistreat them. Like I've seen in the past weeks, 
uh, major like network news go to a guy's hospital bed who is in the hospital intubated for COVID and be like, don't you wish you got the vaccine? If I gave the vaccine to you now, would oh you say God. yes? He's like, no, I probably still wouldn't say it. Like it was a risk. I knew I took the risk. Oh you know, goodness. when they went after yeah. the lady, CNN went to her house. We're like, did you know you posted misinformation on Facebook? Do you know you're a puppet for Vladimir Putin? Like, Wow. Regular people are getting confronted for just having alternate views, and yet these people won't even like turn an eye towards the people actually in power. So. Well, well, alternate views. Um, this is an alternate universe we're talking about with these scary, um, dangerous conspiracy theorists. And and l listen to this. I, I love this because you mentioned how nice people can be. Can can you imagine like the leisure, the leisureness of a of a of a group being used as sort of exemplifying how how dangerous the normalization process is becoming because re okay, okay you got to listen to this part this is hilarious so this is my this is my writing first right i write reading further staff writer david newert has some fantastic observations that captures how insidiously leisurely these people were and how that leisure normalizes the crazy so this is the quote from david newert who is a staff writer for daily coast the spread out leisurely feel to the gathering helped emphasize the sense of normalcy. About 20 booths set up around the lawn hawked conspiracy theories, let you take a photo with a cardboard cutout of Donald Trump, and the parenthetical quote is, our leader in exile and the real president, or buy t-shirts from the far-right street-brawling group Patriot Prayer, whose founder, Joey Gibson, was one of the day's featured speakers. Now, in my post, I also um, put a link into the fact that there are questions about Marcos Musilitos and um, how honest and accurate he's been with his own background. Um, and so, you know, in this environment of media coverage, it's really interesting because even the use of the word propaganda by, um, by members of this festival was, was really like a, a moment of alarm for these people. Um, and, and I'll go further in, in the article. It says later on Shea. So Matt Shea was one of the featured speakers. He's a legislature legislator from Washington state, I believe. Um, later on Shea made a point of encouraging people to confront journalists. Uh, we need to ask these reporters. I want everybody when we're done here. Um, let's see. Actually, that wasn't the one I wanted to read. Hold on. Uh, let's see. Let me go up a little bit. Um, oh, this is the Montana legislature, Derek skis of Kalispell. Um, so this is from, again, the article from Daily Coast. Montana legislature Derek Skies of Kalispell, who acted as the day's master of ceremonies, seemed particularly obsessed with the presence of a crew from Vice News, led by reporter Vegas Tainold, 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 referring sneeringly to them as a pack of hapless New Yorkers. He told the audience that they planned to go back to their offices and paint a portrait of the festival as a gathering of violent racists, and then repeatedly asked the audience if a previous speaker had encouraged them to be violent or racist. Skis also coached the audience, quote, so when, when they pull you aside and they interview you and they talk to you, have one of your friends take their phone and film them because they have a guy that works for them called an editor, and that guy is going to weed out everything you said that was truthful and include things like battle and freedom and, and thing that they think is against freedom or something. I maybe mispronounced that last part, but um, you kind of get the idea. So, so there's awareness from speakers that the media is there, that the coverage is more than likely going to be slanted. Um, Vice News, it's funny, I also put a link in about Vice News. One of their um, founders um, had, to be, had to be kicked out from you know, cancel culture. He's some sexual harasser, allegedly, and so he had to be um, jettisoned and replaced with a vagina. Um, 
and it's important because genitals are very important to, to the folks that um, want to really measure equality through genitals and skin color. Well, what a great, I would say, distillation of where we're at currently. Okay? Right, right. We, they're at a festival, and I guess if you're not familiar, the term red pill is generally means like you're finding out the truth. Like you're in this matrix of lies, and you finally got a hint of the truth, and it just like pulls you in to see that the whole thing is lies. Yeah, okay? thank you for explaining that for people that aren't familiar with that term. Sure, and so you look at this, and you have these journalists who all primarily come from like higher education or where they've basically been put in the social justice they've been taught about the way the world is and the reasons for why we can't get like true utopias all these uneducated christians and right-wing people and all the conspiracy theories and it's their job to go and point them out and like ostracize them and like teach them a lesson about their beliefs so now you have all the republicans on the other side who believe you know, we know the truth. We know that you guys are lying. You know that you don't trust us and you always mischaracterize us to make us look bad because you want no one to be associated with us. So you're willing to like push us out in the wilderness. And they say the same things about the journalists of like they're sneering. They're from the coast. They think they're elite. Yep, it's like yep. we have two groups of people that because we live in such disparate like echo chambers of information have completely gotten explanations for why the other people believe them. And when these two human beings come, they don't have anything in common anymore. Yeah. They only have to interact with the other person as if the caricature is, is who that person is. And there's no more listening. There's no more open mindedness. It's just making an example of people and then you know all the other people on the side who are creating this whole right-wing ecosystem yeah. against them uh just because the people in the news business wouldn't do their basic job in the first place of treating them like human beings and, and just being open to their ideas maybe the election was stolen how do you know 100 percent? this is a weird thing so as i was yeah yeah i, I couldn't get away from it today they started the capitol hearing january 6th things and oh, so first you thing i turned on this in, morning was a policeman, I don't want to be too disrespectful, but he didn't seem like the smartest guy, uh, reading a prepared statement about how awful it was and the insurrection and how traumatic it was. Um, and th this was weird is if on Twitter today, I saw this uh, reporter for the New York Times. It's weird to me that a reporter for the New York Times would have like a Pikachu hat on her profile and be like, I'm a reporter for the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, it seems like mm. she has no professional standards whatsoever. Uh, but she literally said, why are we even having the commission? Because we all know what happened and we shouldn't have to cover right wing people objectively because well, they don't believe the truth and they don't believe what's actually going so, on. So there's and been, I'm like, yeah. you're a reporter. Why would we even need to have this commission if you're already so sure you know what happened? Like, well, why are we having the show trial if you're so sure you know exactly what happened and you already know all there is to know? There's no more to be investigated. There, um, man, there is some some op-eds recently from the New York Times, and I've been meaning to write about this in the at the blog, and I haven't had a chance to. But, um, I mean, the the push to justify activism journalism um, is becoming more overt and just you know kind of in your face. And the New York Times has been leading it. Let me see if uh, I can find something real quick with that. Um, well, while you're looking at that, let me mention something because you know when I was younger, I went to um, the Society of Professional Journalists. We had an annual conference when I was in college working for the newspaper and we went down to Dallas. And this is sort of the bedrock of what all journalistic ethics should be. And they made some really major overhauls and changes to their ethics uh, list of how reporters should act in certain situations. And one of them was it used to say that you should act objectively in all situations and even avo avoid even the the perception of yeah, bias yeah. because even the perception of bias can taint your news and make people not believe it. Well, they decided to take that out. The word objectivity and objective have been completely stripped out of the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics. 
which really, I don't think anyone knows that. I think people still expect journalists to be objective and to try to look for the truth and weigh both sides and not be biased. But the very highest organization that trains journalists uh, took the word objectivity completely out of their code of ethics. So I wonder if the public knows that. They, well, they're not even expected to act that. I'm sure they'll go on the perception that people will give them. But Yeah, the, the 80s has so many echoes and ripples still, um, whether you're talking about sort of un- the lack of accountability for, for big pharma and, and vaccine injuries, or when you talk about the partisanship that's you know really inserted itself into uh, the media discourse because there is no longer a requirement that, that there's a fair and balanced approach. I mean, that was sort of baked into the into the formula in our in our media landscape before that was that idea was sort of taken um, taken out and removed, which is like, well, you know, maybe uh, uh, maybe we do need to have some some parameters put in because part of what I've been criticizing is the ends justify the means mentality seeping into a lot of different uh, you know kind of work environments and institutions. Um, and we were talking a lot last last week about some of that local manifestations of that. Yeah, and and speaking of the New York Times, you were going to look at some op eds there. Like Barry Weiss is the one who used to work at the Opinion page oh, yeah, there, yeah. and she's uh, started a Substack and does her own work now. I think Substack's a great way. You know, these journalists don't have to be weighed down by you know whatever institution they work for, or the expectation of their peers that they conform to to their coverage. But um, she also talked about a lady named uh, Maud. Let me make sure I get this lady's name right. Her name is Maud Marin, and she's actually a liberal. She's lived in New York City for years. Uh, She's worked really hard on uh, getting uh, legal services to minorities. Uh, She's part of the Legal Aid Society starting in 98, where she recognized or she represented disadvantaged people in Manhattan. Um, And she came back. She's worked there for most of the last 20 years. But then uh, a colleague who had a conflict with her decided to start calling her racist and, like, amplified this. And... Of course, anyone who's worked with her, according to the article, has no indication she's ever acted racist. In right, fact, she right. spent decades of her life being a champion for people of color. And uh, But all it took was one colleague not liking her and throwing the word racist out there, and her whole career is ruined now. And mm-hmm. people are like, you know, this is a woman who realistically has helped people of color and disadvantaged minorities for years, and now... All those people, that help is not going to be available anymore because one person decided to throw the race card down. That's just insane. Um, and it, when you look at the, the justifications that are now coming out, so the it's a former New York Times editor, and this is coming from the aggregate news site Zero Hedge, um, but it's pulled from Jonathan Turley's blog. Um, and the, the person is L- Lauren Wolf, so former New York Times editor. And let's see... Um, she attacks the very notion of objectivity that was once the touchstone of modern journalism. So this is something that she she said. I'm trying to look really quickly to see where she she wrote this. Uh, I guess she has a column in the Washington Monthly. Okay. And so this is her quote um, from Jonathan Turley's blog. I've always believed it is better to be open about my views on the issues I cover, which for a long time have been worn international human rights. And yes, I often do write with an agenda, with an eye toward creating change. So yes, I am biased and consciously so when it comes to certain subjects, especially when I'm reporting on criminality, but I don't see that as a bad thing. Um, and so, uh, let's see, I'm trying to just look down really quickly. I mean, you know, my approach has been to talk about the idea of gonzo journalism and this aesthetic that Hunter S. Thompson popularized um, that did say that objectivity for you know people is impossible. It's this ideal that you shouldn't try and strive for, and that he went into that sort of 
um, okay, I'm going to, you know, write with sort of flair and with exaggerations and I'm going to use some, some creative license, you know, uh, poetic license uh, as you will to, to make what he was writing about, you know, 1972 election, for example, the presidential election with Nixon, you know, he wrote in a very engaging way. Um, but in a, in a way that back then there was still a separation where you had the sort of Cronkite legacy news uh, figures, you had trust, which now the public has lost so much trust. I still don't think that the, the liberal mentality understands what Russiagate did for people. Um, you know, the, the Russiagate was such an absurd, long, ridiculous just never ending, you know, scapegoat for, for everything. I mean, it just, it, it was disgusting. Um, and so, you know, back then Hunter S. Thompson, I think could pull it off, but now, you know, later, later in our conversation, we'll talk about sarcasm and satire, but I'm just like, where, where are we going? Um, with media, let me, just, there was another thing I wanted to mention. Um, oh, I, I do like giving local examples. And I do refer to the Missoula Current as propaganda and Martin Martin Kitston as a propagandist. And I, I do that because I have, you know, my arguments in which I formulate. And one example, because I want to talk about some of the, the Reserve Street homeless camp stuff again. But there was an article that the Missoula Current ran about fireworks and the fact oh, that yeah. no, no tickets were, were handed out. It almost seemed like there was a disappointment that that the police didn't act as enforcers of a nanny state and go around during the Fourth of July when they have more important things to do because people are getting wasted, right? And like you know, there's some shit that they need to deal with, and um, so they approach it as an educational opportunity. They didn't hand out tickets, and Martin Kiston's Missoula Current focused a lot on the on the risk of fire and how there were some people that were really nervous about this huge display that was illegally set off, and there was sparks falling from the sky. And I'm just like, wow. So I looked at the Missoula Current website to see what kind of recent reporting there's been about the actual fires at the Reserve Street homeless camps. You know, according to NBC Montana, 16 since June. Um, I'm sure there's been more since then, but um, nothing really that I could find about the Reserve Street camps. And so here you have someone, um, an online upstarts news journal, Right, that thinks it's more important to focus on the lack of tickets on the Fourth of July for the risk of fires versus actual fires um, causing actual risk for actual homes and actual people living and working out there. So, well, and isn't it interesting that this former Missoulian reporter, yeah, who good point. Apparently, when all these Missoulian reporters worked at the Missoulian in the past, uh, they're now able to go request records of what kind of tickets and investigations are being done, but. I, I, apparently they weren't able to do it with the rape and sexual assault allegations that were going on. And when the Justice Department investigates and finds as many as 20 victims a month uh, over like a two-year two year period, yeah. uh, why couldn't they pull the police records on that? Why didn't they question, you know, when they see 80-plus percent of the rape referrals from the police department being sent to the county attorney and, and them declining to prosecute those? Isn't it interesting? There's no articles about uh, how awful the police are for, for not pursuing or giving out tickets. You know, and and we're here at another point where we're looking at city budgets again. And there's another right. article. Good in Missoulian. point. Yep, it yep, was yep. just last year during COVID that you know we we were learning from the ACLU that the Missoula police arrest black people at like ten times the rate of white people. And there was actually protests to stop funding the police, defund the police in Missoula. And and Mayor Engen came out and said, No, we need to fund them more. We need to buy their new showers. We need to buy their new equipment. 
that was only a year ago. And here we yeah. are a year later being told, oh, they need more money. They need more funding. What? Why? Didn't you just do this a year ago? How is it so urgent that the problem that was we just took care of a year ago is now a problem again? Seems like these things are never solved. They're just always set on fire so they can request more money. Well, and this is where some of these local organizations that you know that, that claim some of these principles, like I really am curious to see if if Mayor Angen, you know, actually gets some pressure or heat from any of these groups that that might wanna use this opportunity of a political season to to influence at least maybe some rhetoric. You know, maybe he can throw some rhetorical bones out there for people to chew on a bit. Um, but the rhetorical bones that are <clears throat> that are being chewed on are continually these wedge issues. Um, I mean, I referenced the the site Zero Hedge. I held, recently, a couple days ago, I saw that Aaron uh, Knutson, our AG, is getting some some national attention um, for creating a framework uh, to push back against critical race theory. I believe I believe that was. Oh, uh, I didn't see that one. Yeah, that was also, I saw that on, on Zero Hedge. Did you see um, him fall asleep during the city council meeting? No, I just, well, I just caught, I caught okay. someone mentioning that, that he seemed very disinterested. Oh, well, um, The Current has a whole thing about him just, uh, was it, maybe I should just read this. Since we've shit on The Current, let's read some of their content. Right, Missoula yeah. Mayor John Angan appeared groggy and disengaged during Monday night's city council meeting, something out of character for the typically acute city leader. At times, his articulation was hard to follow. He appeared to nod off at several points. One hour and 20 minutes into the meeting, he apologized, saying he had a long day testifying in court. Uh, the mayor's role during sessions of city council is mar largely parliamentary. I'll simply apologize. He said, I've had a very long day. It's very warm in my office right now, and I was nodding off. It's not what you all deserve from me. I'm more awake now. Interesting. Well, I mean, you have to mention the fact that uh, this man disappeared for a month for treatment for alcohol his alcoholism. Um, and so there's always sort of that, I, I think, you know, wonder, at least from, from me, you know, that, Oh, because it's not easy to maintain oh. sobriety. And apparently he was in court testifying because of the water right. lawsuit. So, well, and, and we didn't have this down to, to discuss, but, um, at some point I do want to get actually more into the fact that, um, Brandon Bryant, who was a activist facing felony intimidation charges for comments that he uploaded to YouTube and that, that were sent to city council members by a third party, so not Brandon Bryant. Um, that trial recently was resolved in his acquittal. Um, and it, and it, I don't know if we mentioned this at all in past episodes, but um, you know, I, I sort of forget to contextualize the fact that you know, when you're facing trial, especially for felony charges, he was risking you know, potential up to 10 years in prison for, um, for what he did. And um, and something like that does have a chilling effect well, for public comments. And we had this whole time period that we were not allowed as the public to get close in, in proximity physically to our elected officials. Um, they're going to have to start dealing with the public again. And it seems like the, 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 almost like the Red Pill Festival and the Montana Human Rights Network, their coverage of it seems to be setting up a, the dynamic that anyone that shows up expressing any kind of anger or frustration about actions taken by the government that have had a potential negative impact on their livelihood, you know, their their pursuit of uh, happiness, you know, that kind of stuff. Wow, I, I didn't realize he actually put video. Uh, Martin Kidston apparently, in accordance with this firework thing, got a ring video he put on the website of people Did setting he? off fireworks saying, this is illegal. Ooh, that sounds like evidence. Good good investigative journalism there, <sighs> well, Marty. I, I don't know, man. Like, 
I think something that's interesting, what people don't realize about the news is they sort of assume that they're just like go out and see what's going on in the community and find interesting stories. But a lot of time it's really what the actual individual reporter cares about. And when this guy is so familiar with city government, first of all, he's going to have a good relationship with them, which is also going to affect his ability to cover them skeptically. And then also when he has uh, this expectation of what the police should be doing, hey, man, we all have that expectation. You're the one who's supposed to represent us and go and see what they're actually doing. So I don't hate the fireworks story, but it just seems to like ticky tack in the grand scheme yeah, of things yeah. of like what's actually going on and is important and you should be covering. I'd rather hear about affordable housing 10 times more than I hear about how many firework tickets. Got. Well, and you do make a good point. Some of the, the good NBC Montana coverage came from Madison Donor, who has since left our, our Missoula market um, and, and moved elsewhere. And you know, took a lot of taught a lot of flack for trying to expose the role of Blue Line Development, a uh, regional affordable housing uh, a company, builder, developer, um, you know, subsidized user. And, and then, so it was interesting to see some of that coverage and, and how it, it does kind of stop sometimes when when a person who is forming those relationships and working a story. Um, well, let me. I want to read you the along. first sentence of Martin Kidston's article, and let's see if we can get exactly what this is about. Okay. Quote, despite the pleas of elected officials and extreme fire conditions, fireworks across the city of Missoula light up the sky over 4th of July, all in violation of local restrictions. It's like, this Whoa. guy is the representative of local government and the earth and, and laws and all these peons with their happiness and seeing things blow up where is someone to be policing this like i mean it just is such a good distillation of, of this guy's point of view you could you could insert you know the illegal trash at the camps you could i mean you could change a few words and have it be this emphatic headline for a different issue uh that is not being legally enforced right now um but that's you know not not his agenda and and so when you do see such an obvious agenda and, and in part by providing a contrast to another story that's so so close to the 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 the, the whole fire risk you know it's like actual fire risk of fire um you m mentioned um you know the individual like uh journalists reporters when, when i was driving today um doing some errands before we we got a chance to start recording I did stop at the West Broadway Island to take a picture of the new gates. So there's there's new wrought iron gates. It's not chain link, which was blocking entry, this entry point to the West Broadway Island. Um, it was blocking just with the chain link, and now these gates can open. So really fancy gates. Aesthetically, they are in line with the rest of the, the gating along the bridge. And they have the sort of, when you think about hostile architecture, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term. It's like anti-homeless architecture, you know, you, you, and anti-skateboard. It's like these skateboarders in the exactly. 90s. They put little metal things on yeah. concrete so they couldn't skateboard. Um, they also do it in London against pigeons. So, um, but but it's uh, it's interesting because the the spiky part of the of the fence points outward, so you're keeping people from from getting in, obviously when it's when it's closed. Um, but I, I stopped and I just, I talked to the reporter. She was wrapping up a story. It was ABC news, I believe. And I, I did, gave her a brief history because I'm just, I'm insufferable. I see people and I just talk. I'm like, Oh, you know, uh, and she, she kind of listened for a while and I, I made it short when I know when I see in their eyes, they're like, Oh God, how long is this guy that just like walked up to me after I wrapped up my, my little piece? Like, how long is he going to talk to me? Can I just tell you 
Yeah. That's most people right now. Most people don't want to talk to other people. It's most people true. have been so conditioned to like interact 80% with their phone that another human being is just like a nuisance. I, so I give you credit that you're actually encouraged, even against all social convention, to go talk to other human beings because it's probably a better way to be. And I also try to be self-aware because I am a little overwhelming at times, but I just wanted her to know that, you know, $500,000 bridge initially, and now it's an $800,000 bridge. And that the whole idea of this bridge was to create easier access um, for people in the community so that that um, community use would counter uh, the transients, uh, meth, alcohol, illegal encampment, trash use. Well, can I piggyback off that yeah, for a second? Because did you see the article about uh, Aber Hall over here at the UM? No. So Aber no. Hall is a 400 unit dorm. I think it's like at least 10, 15 stories. I've been in there when I was in college. I had friends go there. Uh, but they are turning it completely into office space now. So really? oh they're my, removing not... the 400 dorm rooms, which could have provided housing for students. Uh, and they've said there's other options in town for students. They got Rome housing. They got private. So they don't need these 400 rooms. Whoa, you're they kidding really, me. really, really need more office space, which is weird because we're down like 5,000 students uh, or so from our peak. But apparently we just have 400 housing units in this city that we can just demolish and make into offices. So I, that, that's kind of shocking to me. And, and actually, the reason I knew that was because the cost of that project doubled. It would, the, they had to go back to the regents and approve like $2 million more million because the construction costs had gone up. Oh, my goodness. That is something to look into because, I mean, there's so much focus on capacity, on, on housing capacity. Um, there's, you know, not just that, but there's a real push for density. Um, I've been talking to some folks. I, I've been meeting some some new and interesting people and having some great conversations. And I'm really excited that people are aware of things like new urbanism, how that relates to um, things like our master plan downtown, which uh, I, I covered at the blog and covered the fact that a Florida consulting firm, Dover Coal, was paid a lot of public money to develop our master plan, which increases density. Um, there's a lot of rezoning in the works now. And for people that are looking at some of this stuff, um, the rezoning, it, it seems like it's a boring topic to, to get into the weeds on. It's incredibly important. So much is going to hinge on what rezoning does. And um, I don't want to use some of the, the buzzwords that bring up the conspiracy flares and red flags for, for people. But, you know, the idea of eliminating cars is something that is definitely a push for these new urbanist uh, individuals and, and institutions that want to see, um, you know, streets without cars anymore. So a big emphasis on, on, you know, multimodal transportation. And I really think in a lot of ways, Missoula is not just a microcosm, but we're a, we're a pilot testing ground for some of these, these ideas that will, if they work, will spread, um, to other places. And so one of the things to be looking at, um, the use of ADUs is going to be heavily um, pushed as, as part of um, the future addressing housing needs. So when you have 400, you know, 400 units of capacity just taken away, that raises such a huge red flag for me. That's crazy. Well, and it's it's really just an overall trend because if you look at the yeah. way college is going, they need to justify the higher costs. And one of the ways they're doing that is by making these dorms and, and campuses really more of like a med spa or something where, you know, they over in Bozeman, I was finding the same thing. We're like, well, we could build this for less than $200,000 a unit, but then we couldn't have the ski room included where they can wax oh, and tune geez. their skis. And it's like, what the fuck does a ski tuning room have to do with uh, the, yeah. the education? But it does because they, they're trying to offer a whole experience. It's now. the amenity. It's the amenity game to try and, and have enough bells and whistles to attract 
um, the insanity of the debt load that that people are increasingly skeptical of. I mean, I, my my kid, my twelve year old, my oldest gets smart, and he's already looking at at money and wanting to to make some on his own, and and also not necessarily wanting debt. I mean, the kid understands the idea of debt, you know, spending money that you don't have, and um and having to pay that off at some point, and and you know. It's just so much is changing. Um, well, and let me say one more thing, too, about that, because coming into town, I go through East Missoula and we they're now starting uh, construction on the third large apartment complex there in three oh, years yeah. in East Missoula. And I bet they're going to double the population of East Missoula just by putting three large apartment complexes right off the interstate. And that whole corridor from like East Broadway, Thunderbird around the frontage road. It's just being infilled with apartment complexes and taking this little yeah. like two lane road that was a, like a side road uh, and, and you're putting so much more traffic on it. I don't know where the heck these people are going to park. Uh, you know, I've looked into a lot of the zoning and stuff myself and I really I almost wish they would shut down a lot of downtown Missoula and just not even have car traffic because it's moving it, in that direction. I it's, think it's a fact in America that because we don't have good public transportation, we always have to fill a huge portion of our land with parking lots. I yeah. Mean, at least I guess give them credit. They built a three story parking lot in Missoula. I probably should have been like six or seven. And then if you just close down, it would be like front street that runs along the river on the South side and, and make that maybe bikes or maybe just walking paths or something. Just have you ever been downtown when it's like really busy and, oh, yeah. and people are trying to get down into all those Karis parking lot because that's like the only reliable big parking lot mm -hmm. uh, and, and you're just sitting there watching people walk across. It's just like, it's such a frustrating experience where you make tons of people on foot fight for the traffic lanes with all the people in cars. It's just like, if you want to solve some of that congestion, why not just get rid of it? You have this whole issue over on the other side of Orange Street Bridge. You could put a parking lot there. Put a parking lot two, three blocks away and let people walk there. But to make all these people fight each other at every single intersection downtown, uh, parking versus people on the street. First of all, it's not fun to walk. I bet a lot of people don't go downtown just because they hate walking in traffic that I didn't even see them half the time. Because right, right. It's either under construction or it's tall buildings that you can't see around or whatever. There's a lot of things we could do to improve the, the situation all around the county. And the only thing they seem to want to do is, like, take federal money and just build more roads. Well, you know, and then this is a good segue into the, the opportunities I've had to, to thank members of local law enforcement recently, um, in part because as you're talking about the growth, the growth, the all of this development, the, the growth that happens, the starving of the general fund um, with the use of tax increment financing, urban renewal districts, um, you know, that diversion of tax of increments, increasing tax value going to the, the redevelopment agency. You know, law enforcement does get really stretched thin. Um, there's going to be some criticism and budget requests coming up that are be interesting. But um, I was on the California bridge. So we're talking about the West Broadway Island. Uh, the $800,000 bridge is on one end of the island. On the other end of the island, you have an older bridge, which is the California Street Bridge. Um, and so I was there as law enforcement were doing some sweeps of the area. So now that they've reopened after the six, it was like more like seven week closure, um, they are reopening it and they're doing some sweeps because of course camps are already starting to pop up again. It's just going to happen. I worked at the Pavarello Center for seven years. I understand some of these dynamics. And, and I also understand it's really challenging for law enforcement in a lot of ways to be responding to some of the uh, frequent flyer, chronically drunk, mentally ill um, people on the streets. And so the officer, as he was walking down the, the bridge and I was getting ready to leave, I asked him if he knew the history of the bridge with Clay Salcido, 
a homeless veteran was um, violently stomped to death by two drunk teenagers um, about a decade a decade ago. I know you're talking about. Yeah, and, and the officer not only knew what I was talking about, he was one of the responding officers. And so I, I thanked him for the thankless work he, he was doing. And then uh, a couple days after that, I was downtown going to the market, trying to meet my family. And there was uh, a cop who was who had been standing there at the corner um, by the by my, my studio when I was finding a place to park and I wasn't sure why he was standing there. And then by the, fi- by the time I finally found a place to park, which took me like 10 minutes, another cruiser had shown up. Um, n- not a cruiser, but a truck because they were loading a cart full of someone's belonging into the back. And I, I've been hearing a lot of overheard conversations. It's, it's kind of funny, but um, as I was walking by, they were talking about uh, an apple throwing incident. So someone threw an apple hard and chucked someone in the forehead and oh. a hit made a bruise pretty, pretty nasty. I wasn't sure who had the apple who was the victim whatever but it involves someone whose belongings were piled in a grocery cart so i can make assumptions from from that but just just that was an opportunity as i was walking by i'm like hey officers i used to work at pub i know how challenging it is for what you guys are responding to with some of these you know troubles like i thank you for the work you do um because they don't necessarily hear that from people uh just walking by members of the public because most members of the public don't understand the response nature of chronic homelessness, um, of the sort of breakdown of the safety net of other bigger urban centers potentially sending people. I mean, this is kind of a topic in some other places. Um, Smaller communities are seeing newer homeless people showing up. Um, Some ideas of bus tickets being used more frequently to get the problem. Clients move to other locales. and so. Well, and something I didn't even tell you I was coming in here today is I usually park at that parking garage just I'm familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. And maybe like a month or two ago, I don't know, there was a really bad piss smell, like someone just peed yeah. in the stairwell. The next time I came in, there's a guy like mopping it up. There's actually a city employee or someone has to come in and clean that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then two weeks later, we they're installing cameras. So every level of that stairwell uh, for each one of the parking garage, they have cameras set up. Okay, well, today I go in and there is a homeless guy just like sleeping in the stairwell at the top right under the camera. And yeah. I'm like, okay, whatever, you guys had a rough day. I'll just step over and come down here. But I was like, so do they see the cameras? Can they see this guy sleeping here and no one's responding to it? Or do they only respond when someone complains? Or do they only have the cameras up as a liability to be like, oh, yeah. in case someone does to us, we have documentation of it. I'm curious how they have these cameras set up for the city. Like, what do they go to? They're obviously not monitored or people wouldn't just that's be a sleeping great question. right under them. Um, and that's another good thing to kind of look into. Uh, and, and I am glad, Tim, that you didn't automatically assume that the urine smell came from a, a urine uh, p- pisser. Or no, I'm sorry, a homeless pisser, you know, a homeless person that, that's urinating. When I, when I worked um, as the outreach coordinator, I would often talk to people downtown and say, well, you know, it's not necessarily a homeless person that's peeing. Uh, if it's defecation, yeah, usually is. But if, if it was just pee, I'm like, you know, the bar scene is a pretty wild place. And this is a great segue to the meth story. Um, because the last couple of weekends, I have been out to downtown Friday night, Saturday night, walking around, just kind of taking in the scene. I'm having like a... a you might have referred to it as another midlife crisis. Um, sure. I, I'm like a, a second teenager. My wife's really annoyed at me. I'm just like out walking around, just taking in the the environment. Um, and it, I don't go into bars because I'm not drinking alcohol. And so I'm just feeling the vibe, so to speak, right? And as I'm walking around, having great conversations, um, just kind of running into people, I've run into a handful of former clients. Um, one former client was actually walking around the new hotels, kind of like looking around and just like, like you could see sort of like the disdain on his face. And I talked with him and 
that was fun. But the story I wanted to mention is walking through an alley. Oh, are you okay there, Tim? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. Are you, you're not on methamphetamine, are you? What would I even tell you? Does no, it sound you like I am? No. Maybe you need to be. Maybe that'll animate you. And get <sighs> Maybe. You. Um, but, but I've never actually seen crystal meth before. And so I'm walking down an alley, and I don't want to say specifically where. I'm kind of working on making some connections in terms of uh, not meth, um, but a business that a business employee witnessed what what I, this interaction. So, um, but I, I saw a client that I was familiar with. It's someone I've talked to previously um, that I had some concerns about the Reserve Street campfires. Um, and so I've mentioned this person's name to a person um, in a position of authority. But after Friday night. Was it Thursday night or Friday night? I'm pretty sure it was just Friday night. I'll, I'll check my notes. But Friday night, I believe it was, I was walking around midnight, and I see this guy. He's getting ready to leave his little spot. It's just him. He's packing up his stuff. And so I say, hey, so-and-so, and I strike up a conversation with him, and I, I notice that there's, like, these crystal-looking things on the concrete step right there. And I'm like, hey, I'm like, what is that? What are you What are you leaving behind? He's like, oh, it's just a few, few rocks, a few crystals. And I'm like, why are you leaving behind money, man? I mean, that's money. He's like, oh, it's only, like, $20 worth. And I'm just like, okay, so you can just leave behind $20 worth. I'm like, is that, are you, are you making it? Are you cooking it? He's like, no, supplying. You know, and I asked him if it was in-state or out-of-state. He's like, out-of-state. I'm like, oh, wow, he's just answering my questions. Cool. Um, and then he wanted me to walk with him to a, a place where he was meeting someone. And I was like, fuck no, I, I got to go somewhere else. And during this whole interaction, there was someone watching pretty intently to the point where I'm like, this isn't a, a reveler in the, the downtown scene. And, and so after I um, pretended to walk down the alley, I kind of stopped and went back and, and the guy was doing security um, for the establishment. So he was kind of like the door guy. And so I talked to him and I'm like, yeah, watch out for this guy. This is his name. I worked at the POV. Um, I know a lot about sort of his history. Um, and now you probably noticed that I was talking to him about the crystal meth he was about to leave behind. And I was worried about squirrels maybe coming across the meth and tweaking and becoming rabid. Um, and so I'm really glad that he, I, I did a civic duty is what I'm trying to say by getting the meth dealer to take his meth with him, all of the meth. And, uh, but it was really interesting because, um, today I followed up with a couple people that I've put calls out to, but I, I finally was able to talk to someone with the drug task force and pass on the information. Um, so they oh, can so do your narc. I'm a snitch motherfucking all snitch. Right, you got it on. Yeah, tape. no, I'm a snitch. Absolutely. No. And, and in doing this, I mean, I don't like the the effects on our society right now of meth use specifically um i don't like both um, black market money coming in and who is being empowered by that i also don't like the above ground sort of money coming in federally project safe neighborhoods is something i've written about it's a federal initiative that united way got over two hundred and forty thousand dollars um, to, to, they formed a committee with it and they're going to look at meth treatment they're not going to actually, I think ever really provide meth treatment. Um, but it's, it's the way that this, um, you know, meth problem, you know, becomes a chance for nonprofits like United way to get some, some money. And meanwhile, this client is just peddling, you know, crystal meth on the streets and that doesn't lead to people making really great, awesome choices and, and sound, um, you know, behavior, but no, um, the way I'm going to relate to this is because I worked in the early 2000s when I was in school as like an HIV hep C counselor. And we had a big meth epidemic back in the early 2000s. In Absolutely. Montana. Yeah. And um, we've had maybe two or three in the last 20 years. And what's interesting when you actually sort of research this stuff from like a health safety standpoint is 
you know, this can be the exact same substance, but in different communities and different cultures, it's treated completely differently. Like in, in gay culture, there's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of crystal meth use. Uh, it seemed like ketamine, crystal meth. Well, you, you can have, you can extend your sexual encounters longer and that's a beneficial thing for someone that's having a healthy, engaged sex life. Right. And that's not a bad thing. I don't want to um, cast judgment on the private choices people make in their own lives. Well, you don't see like an epidemic of gay guys behind bars. You know, you would have these Mormon housewives who just have all the expectations of them and they would do a little bit of speed to get through their day. You know, whether it be like truckers, I don't they they, they drug test truckers now. So it's not well, really as to, common. But to give you a really quick example to interrupt you real quick, um, I, I did have another conversation years ago with a client who had a brain injury. And this guy really understood the sort of quality of meth that he was looking for. And because of his brain injury, which I mean, anyone that has brain injuries are specific to the individual. It's, it's very, I mean, you can't really um, generalize when it comes to brain injuries, but here was a guy that was um, speaking very lucidly to me about how he would find and um, test essentially the, the method that would help him function a little bit better. Um, I mean, he used it in a way that was, um, it seemed to actually help him and to the point where the way he articulated his use, he actually had a counselor that was semi supportive of it. Um, and so there, there might be a role for some of these substances, but, um, I have a strong feeling that, you know, there are, there are cartels, um, that actually do have presences in small towns and their, their presence is extended, I think, um, from black market use of, of meth in, in communities like in college towns like this, where, you know, the, the Badlander is quite a party scene now. I mean, they've got this big lights in there and it's like this disco tech kind of thing and. Um, all these youngsters out having fun, like good you know, for them. I hope they're safe, but man, when that... I was growing up, like nineties techno was really kind of a gay thing. The whole rave scene, the, the, everyone like I went to, to raves in the nineties. Yeah. We went to Salt Lake, went to some raves. Uh, but you know, when we were traveling in Eastern Europe, uh, here it's, it's sort of cause they're like faggy music, like gay music to listen to techno. But over there, you know, Bulgarian taxi drivers, they'd have this like hard techno playing on the radio and we're driving around we're like. Is this and and everyone loves it over there? And so I started asking a couple of people. I was like, "Why is like hardcore techno so big over here? It's really kind of a niche music field. Yeah, pretty yeah. much everywhere else I've been, they're like, well, there's a lot of speed that goes around, and a lot of people. This is like how they deal with their shit as they go to a club and do some speed and just dance until they're like ready to pass out. It's just how they get their anger and their aggression out, and that's just the socially cultural acceptable thing to do. And so it's not seen as like feminine like it would be in America to go to a rave there. It's it's just like club music. It's just what a lot of, because so many more people listen to and they don't have yeah, these, yeah. this is what's interesting about America is we like seem to be hyper uh, in tune to masculine and feminine. And we don't, for men, we got to be masculine or for women, you know, I think it's, feeds into the whole cultural issue we're doing right now there it's not even seen that way it's not seen as like manly or yeah. womanly the kind of music you listen to you know it's the same cultures that like kiss each other on the cheek and give each other hugs they're not gay they're just like very close and familiar that's just how culturally it's been so um the other thing i want to say too is you know there's a book i read called no speed limit and it does talk about meth a lot and if you look statistically at meth um We've been very hyped to it. We've had like the Montana Meth Project, not even once. Right. Uh, a lot of sort of propaganda and programming around it to try to make sure people never actually try it. Which, and it's you know, and, and it's, there's political aspects of it too. Of yeah, course. fair. But when you actually do the research is you find that most drugs, most people don't like quit drugs by going to rehab. It's only like the most extreme people that need that kind of intervention. A lot of people, if they lose a job, they lose a relationship, they have like a significant event in their life in which the drug triggers some kind of loss they'll quit doing the drug 
that's, that's one interesting point. thing about you know methamphetamine is is most people you know will try it a few times and not like it they'll do it until it fucks something up in their life and then never do it again uh the the idea that you are addicted as soon as you try it forever unless you get government help or or a rehab or something is not necessarily true and the data doesn't support it either most people my story does i mean that's i i i didn't have to have a legal intervention in order to say that alcohol was producing negative effects in my life and the people around me were impacted negatively you know it took them just saying that enough times not in a sort of concerted intervention way um but you know it, it was to the point where okay yeah, let's make better, healthier choices and see what can come from that. Um, if you're going to say something else, I'll, I'll let you. But you, no, you, mentioned mu- you mentioned music, and I do want to. This that was the perfect chance to segue into my music, right? Um, oh yeah, should we do that? Yeah, we should. We should do that. So turn on, turn on that input, and I'll, I'll mention quickly. Part of the challenge of getting away from the the alcohol dependency that that formed over over years, kind of incrementally for me, is the fact that as an artist. I have used substances to help free up the creative juices, um, and alcohol is a notorious lowerer of inhibitions. And so, in 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 a lot of ways, they can be tools if you're wanting to um, kind of you know loosen yourself up and stuff. But um, that, in some ways, for artists, I think, can lead to this psychological dependency that you then need substances. And I'm not you know free of substances by any means. I love my caffeine. Um, other, other naturally growing plants can be wonderful things. And, and so, you know, part of turning my back on, on the, the box wine was like, oh, can I still like be making poetry and and music and stuff? And, you know, I'm making more, more art than I ever have before to the point where when someone sends me a direct message on Facebook, a supporter of Daniel Carlino wanted to, excuse me, wanted to kind of gently let me know. Okay. Just gently that um, among the activists that are supporting uh, Mr. Carlino, that Daniel, his given name, is his preferred name. And I don't know if that comes from the candidate himself. Um, it came from a supporter. Oh, because you keep saying Danny? Is that what they're mad yeah, about? Yeah, Danny. And, and so my intention has not been to sort of denigrate or demean or... Um, because because he's a he's a young person, he looks very young, and I can see how Danny can emphasize the the youthfulness of him. But if they think that's what's going to win him an election, then go ahead, I guess. I... And again, I don't know if that comes from Carlino himself, but um, we've been playing around, like we said earlier, with with getting some additional media input, and and you've not heard this song before yet. No. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually we're gonna play it. It's only like two minutes long, and it's I I wrote out a poem first at the river. I was at the family the other day, and so this, I was writing some some lyrics. I kind of wanted to write a rap, and I have an idea for a video that I'll do maybe some point. But um, so I was writing some some lyrics down, and then I I just had a chance to to record some stuff, and I really like it. I I dance in my studio in front of that mirror over there. Um, I've been dancing a lot. Oh, to, did to, you get a TikTok? Not yet. I should oh, though. That, that's well TikTok. Was. So we're gonna listen to this and then we'll talk about it a little bit afterwards. Um, and and part of what I wanted to to do actually as a as a conversation piece is the fact that um, I think it was on the propaganda report they talked about AI getting better at detecting sarcasm. <laughs> this idea that you know satire, sarcasm, comedy. I mean, comedy is now another article that Monica Perez retweeted was talking about, you know, comedy being just an excuse for people to be racist. And so it's like you're going after comedy, you're going after these 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 creative forms that people use to kind of be human and to make jokes and to laugh about stuff. Maybe all that's going away, but um you know, I wanted to 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 tap into what what maybe Daniel could say as a rap artist to me 
um, and and to represent sort of himself. And so, oh, is this a wrap? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I, I'm ready. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Should we turn off our mics? So, no, we can leave our mics on. We'll just be, don't say anything and let the let the wonderful music wash over you. Sure. Are you prepared for this? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Okay, that was the wrong one. Oh. This one. Take sock puppet bites. Oh shit, does that hit? Ooh, trigger, ooh, three. Who gave speech some free guarantee? A bunch of white racists who built the white house. That's why this kid's crying. Tear the shit down. This is a warning. Turn that wrong right and stop chanting. that it yeah that oh my gosh i'm so glad you're my friend sometimes <laughs> i don't have any artsy people as friend when so when we do the the puppet show um this is the this is <coughs> excuse me this is the kind of fun that we can have wasn't that an, an enjoyable song i liked stanny and the trannies that's that, almost like benny and the jets that's gonna get me in trouble though isn't it stan Bragg and the trannies do if we can't have some levity and laugh about some of this stuff, um, then it just becomes a humorless, sad, depressing environment in which people are feeling hate and anger towards each other. And I want people to, to laugh and, and have some lightness in their life and, and, and love each other. I don't have any animosity towards any of the, the candidates other than the 16-year um, run of, of one particular you know person. But um, beyond that, I think there's going to be some opportunities in the coming weeks because, as you mentioned, three weeks until um, the, the mailers go out for the primary, um, primary September 14th, right? Yeah. Do you have any predictions? Who do you think will make it through? That's I mean, a... Strandberg, by his own admission, seems to think he has no chance, but... You know, I... Actually, well, actually, let me share something because I wanted to actually try to get some numbers on this race and so i started Ooh. contacting some vendors to see if i could get polling software and i just got a huge run around from like five people um interesting. So I was almost to the point yeah i went over to the election office too uh to try to get a voter list which i can still get but 
I think at this point, maybe I'll just get like a burner phone and just call a couple hundred people and ask them. Yeah. I don't know what else to do. I, it's easier if you can find software, but you also have to pay several grand for these softwares usually because they're mostly designed for very large campaigns. But I think Jacob Elder is going to have a pretty, pretty good showing. I think a lot of my early frustrations, you know, a lot of the stuff did come out early and I think is kind of in the rear view. Um, I, I know on Facebook he was prepping his supporters for, for more accusations coming I don't know if that's that's played out. I've seen him take some pictures with law enforcement. He took a picture at the homeless camp. Uh, I recognize exactly where he was where he was standing. So he didn't go too deep into the camps, which is a good thing. Um, sounds like from what the people I talk to, they're they're armed out there, and so I am not going to probably be going out there anytime soon. But um, you know, if Jacob Elder does get through the primary and is the challenger, I at this point would prefer to see him, I think over John Engen, despite all the baggage, despite some of the challenges, I think I, I would be interested to see the people and some of the, the action steps he would take. Um, I hope he gets more substantive in, in, in his, in the issues. You know, I, here is my fear, but it's also a benefit. Um, we are going to know, see, if we, if we had to guess the race right now, I wouldn't know exactly what to guess. This is going to be like 60-40, Engen has a lead, but it's chipped right. away at. Is it like 80-20? Is he just going to run away with it? Once those primary votes come in, they're going to have a really good situation on what the actual numbers are between Jacob, Elder, and John Engen, okay? And then they're going to have two months to try to change those numbers in whoever's favorite is. So maybe it comes up like 40-40. They're very even, and then whoever voted for for Greg Strandberg and Sean Knopp will get divided by them. Probably Elder. I I imagine whatever Engen's uh, level of support is at that primary, he's probably not going to do a whole lot better. But he's going to have the opportunity to do because he's going to have a giant war chest and two months to try to get whatever votes he needs uh, before the actual general election happens. So you know, I've been asking random people if they're just if they're going to vote, and a lot of people are saying no. Um, Strandberg works in the service sector, and so he has a chance to try and motivate um, just through word of mouth conversations um, with people that are working late at night and in the very difficult environment of being understaffed and overburdened by an incredibly hard, heavy tourist season. And so if, I mean, if Strandberg can actually translate some of that into people showing up and voting, um, that will be, that will be interesting. Sean, Sean Knopp, I'm, you know, because he did take down his Facebook page um, before the, he was announced as a candidate, you know, no one can go in and of course catch him and stuff, but also you can't necessarily see friends. Um, that, that's maybe a soft indicator of, of how much sort of friend word of mouth support um, a relatively unknown like Sean could, could maybe expect to get. Um, and that would give you an idea of maybe how many votes could be peeled off in a primary um, from But that's the other candidate. advantage of these small-scale elections, and it really gives the people in power an inherent... Uh, a, it, it gives both a, an opportunity, but also a, a giant way to keep them in power. So you think of, like, AOC. Have you seen... Uh, do you watch The Politician on Netflix? No. Oh, no. my gosh, you got to see this show. You'd really like it. So uh, AOC was in this very safe district, and she ran against this guy. I think it was an old white guy who had been there for, like, 20-some yep, yep. years. And because there was such a low turnout in that election, she really only had to find a really good small core of motivated people to go out and vote for her. And maybe the turnout in that election was only like 20, 30 percent. Right. But right. it was just enough for her to get 51 percent and, and win that primary and get in. 
if someone had a really, really good campaign operation here, I think they could come out and beat Angan. But they have to have that because, yeah, yeah. In my opinion, seeing Elder's campaign so far being so heavily focused on image things like putting up yard signs, writing articles, having things on Twitter and Facebook, I don't think that's what gets people to actually do the action of filling out the ballot and sending it back in. And when there's so much apathy because people just have this impression that nothing's going to change, you have to be the one to change that. Now, Engen's going to have a core group of people going out. They're going to go up the Rattlesnake. They're going to go up the South Hills. They're going to go in the richer, wealthier parts of Missoula and be like, we're going to keep keeping you safe. We're going to keep the homeless people down. What, you know, whatever his messaging, it's not going to be what I just said. But, right, right. But you get what I'm saying that if you run something really, really well, uh, you do have a much easier capacity because in a low turnout election, you don't need a you don't need 90 percent of the people to come out and vote for you. Maybe only 20 or 30 percent because the rest of them aren't voting. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you don't have that, then that gives John Engen a much bigger edge because he is always going to have a bench of people who will go there and vote for him no matter what happens in town. Well, and I wonder, though, that core group, um, I, of course, there is a core group, <clears throat> but um, I had a conversation just, you know, again, running into someone that I used to know in my my capacity at the POV. And this is a person that's pretty high up in the hospital, one of the hospital systems. And, you know, I'm, I'm very honest with no filter in pretty much every conversation I'm having with people. And so when people make the mistake of saying things like, so Travis, what are you up to? <laughs> I'm like, I, I do. I the do. mistake of saying how. Yeah. They're like, uh, well, cause sometimes I just don't give them the option. I just kind of go into what I'm actually doing. But in, in this, in this situation, I was like, well, do you want to know what I'm doing? She's like, uh, she knows me well enough. She's like, okay, keep it short kind of thing. And, and so I just said that, you know, I'm trying to expose um, some of the dynamics that I have come to understand from my position, you know, at the Pavarilla center and, and other, other things. And, and she said that um, while she doesn't have people telling her things overtly, um, she knows a lot of people that are just not a lot of people that, that won't be voting for Engen, you know, that like have said at least that much. They're not specifying, you know, but um, her her feel um, from some of her peers and colleagues in, in those circles is that um, some people now are frustrated to the point of not supporting the, the mayor. So. Um, and I also want to mention. Well, and, and can I add on yeah, to that yeah, really yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah. Think about what traditionally Democrats have relied upon to make sure that they win elections. They rely upon the newspapers painting a rosy picture of them. They do not rely upon people who are doing their work to get them elected being not trusted anymore. And right, I think that's a right. threshold we've kind of gone into with the TV and news. Yeah. A lot of people look and be like, who is the news saying is like Wonder Bread and we should always support? Oh, it's always Engen and always the Democrats? Okay, well. I don't know a lot of things, but I do know these guys have a track record of lying to me and being on the side of corporations. And, mm -hmm, and they've, mm -hmm. they've failed to address some real issues in this city and be on the side of regular people. So I'm just going to vote against whoever the news tells me to vote. Um, there's a lot of things that Democrats in the past have really traditionally trusted to get them through, which yeah. I don't think they can now. You know, my mom is is pretty much a Democrat. She admits to it. She votes Democrat a lot of the time. This last year, she didn't vote Democrat. And it was interesting because with COVID, there was sort of this back and forth on whether Democrats traditionally rely on people going and knocking doors. You mm -hmm. talk about, uh, what's her name, Maggie Bornstein working right. for the six mill levy. In 2018, they had a whole, every single college, well, I shouldn't say every single, most of the colleges in the state had a little crew of people going to all the houses and being like, don't you support education? Don't you support schools? Don't you support young people? And and that going door to door helps get them good percentages. Now, of course, they take millions of corporate monies to pay those people to go knock those doors. But in 2020, 
uh, almost no one was able to go out and do that voter right, contact. And right. I think it really hurt the Democrats because that has traditionally gave them a bump of a few points, especially when they need it in close races. Well, my mom was like, yeah, this late, this girl came up. She's really young, like 1920. Um, and there was something said of like, yeah, I guess something has to be done. Like she wouldn't ask my mom directly, are you going to vote for the Democrat? Will you commit to voting for John Tester? She didn't go that far. Yeah. But my mom, you know, in relating the conversation back to me later, she's like, this girl left the conversation thinking based on the sort of vague things I said that I would vote Democrat, but I never actually told her that. <laughs> and I probably won't. And yeah. she, as far as I know, she didn't. And so I'm just wondering, you know, whether it's the polling, whether it's reliance on the news, whether it's, you know, the, the difficulties now in a much more hyper- a sterile thing where people don't want to do one-on-one -on -one contact and especially Democrats. They want ever, do you just hear on the way here, the CDC is reckon is, is recommending people who've been fully vaccinated now start putting the mask back on indoors. Do. Yeah. As, <laughs> you're cutting off your main means of winning an election and there's some old Democrats that will fight that. But if, if, if you want on principle to take away the tools that have won you elections, then you're going to be prepared to deal with the consequences. Well, you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, let me, you mentioned earlier that um, we have less students on campus. I mean, that's been one stronghold, obviously, for any Democrat in a college town. Um, yeah. And so having less students is a sign significant factor. And the, one of the things I was going to mention, the marijuana tax, right? The local one? or The, the local one. one okay. The local one. So an additional local tax, ta you know, tacked on um, to what is going to be, I think, around a 23% state tax for recreational marijuana. Um, and so in Missoula, we want to push that to 26% to probably recoup some lost revenue um, from the big meanies, Republicans at the state level, um, impacting the local option gas tax, right? So I think it's an open question, especially if you're thinking about students. I mean, some people might be like, yeah, okay, yeah, it's going to maybe more conservation. And so we don't mind a higher tax. So people that are renters, students might not necessarily feel too troubled by, by that tax and they might not be motivated to turn out because of that. Well, homeowners are not going to be feeling the same thing. They're getting uh, new valuations um, sent to them. Um, they, to give some examples of bond fatigue, right? Uh, target range, the, the school system my kids go, go to right now that might not be happening next year. We'll see. Um, but they try to pass a bond to do a bunch of really actually needed improvements in terms of safety at the, at the school that bond was killed. Yeah. You know, so, so bond fatigue finally started um, rearing its head and that was kind of pre COVID, but um, you know, a, a tax might be a reason for people to get out and not necessarily support the status quo four term 16 year reign of her Engen, you know? Well, and think about all the ways that the Democrats have traditionally been able to keep the state purple. Uh, you know, we are a very large state, but a very small population. You put a little dark money group in here, like an environmental group or something, they can go pretty far because there's, you know, if they have the resources to just run a day-to-day -day office, they can actually get a lot done. Well, now we enter in a time where we're scaring the crap out of kids, sending their kids to college that they might get COVID. Uh, we're increasing the cost of college to the point where a lot of people just don't believe that it's worth it anymore, that you can get a better education just going and getting a job and you don't have to take on all the debt. And so you separate this into it's, it's almost exclusively for upper classes now. And then also, you know, we talked last time about the redistricting commission that's coming out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a, a tactic of Democrats for at least the last 20 years has been wrap as many people as possible into the university districts so yeah. that the college kids coming out and voting will push them over. So if it's like a competitive 50-50 district, then we go get a bus and some pizza with Ford Montana and bring them all to the polls. Hey, we won. Right, right. Uh, 
so the the decline in the number of students who are doing it who are relied upon by a lot of their party to do all the actual door-to-door and and walking the doors and talking to voters that's going to go away and then you also have this uh, population is being kind of taken out at the exact point that you're redrawing the districts um that's also going to take it away i'm really curious where democrats go because i think if Democrats lose hard next year, they're going to be sort of out in the wilderness. I mean, national politics completely aside, what you really as a Democrat need to have a moderate message. They're, they're going can for, you have that when your state, when your national party has gone so far left? They're going for the minds of the youth. Okay, They're going for pre-K, and they want to get them as early as possible. And they're pushing parents like me who are Gen X. Um, they're, they're pushing me from um, once upon a time I wrote for a progressive blog, 420 Blackbirds, Lizard was my name, you know? Uh, and I, I, am, I, I cried. Did I ever tell you, Tim, that I teared up when Obama um, gave a speech at the Adams Center in 2008 that, that a fucking that. tear rolled down my goddamn cheek? That, yeah, it, it happened. I, I, I teared up. And then Democrats rebranded wars of atrocity into human, humanitarian interventions, and I realized, oh, Oh shit! You know that was all just surface level PR, you know, mind fuckery, wizardry stuff. Okay, no, you, you, like you can um, if you want a sort of timeline of how Travis Mateer got radicalized um, into the the biomedical you know terrorist threat that he now is. You know, it's there's a wide amount of content out there available for anyone that wants to go look um, at how I really wanted to to bring attention to what was happening with foreign policy, how I wanted to write more about poetry and art, um, and and how a lot of these these places that I felt naturally aligned with, um, they they started not only not necessarily feeling like they represented my interests, but now it's like they've turned hostile, authoritarian, you know, psychotic. Um, and it's just like I, I don't know how to how to handle some of this, and you know I guess I'll be bring be bringing the punk rock vibe to the conservatives. Well, we're we're and the now Republicans. to the point. Well, I'm, what was there's a quote something of like, if you just wait uh, twenty years, the Democratic Party will turn you into a Republican because they yeah. just keep moving so far uh, away and, and going. The things that we would never even consider plausible in the past, we are now actively fighting against, like. Women are going to apparently be registered to go to the draft. I, I would love to see how many Demo- that. Uh, elections Democrats win once the women and caskets, the like pregnant fighter pilots start coming back uh, killed by terrorists. Uh, There's equality the for you. The Olympics right now. I, I, I did yes, say I wanted to talk, talk about, about yes. the Olympics. Let's, let's end on talking about the Olympics. That's beautiful. Well, I try to stay away, but they're constantly suggested to me. Um, and there's been a couple profile cases in the news uh, the but, last... But, but before you get into it, I mean, it's incredibly important to watch what's happening at the Olympics, at the Super Bowl. These cultural touchstones um, really do set uh, agendas and define in a lot of ways what are going to be um, societal expectations. And so I'm really glad that you've been paying attention to this stuff because I have not. So. Well, and you think about when I was just talking about these bedrock principles we all held, which we now are just seeing overturned. Okay, the Olympics, like sports, are supposed to be an arena in which we turn our minds off from everyday life. It's supposed to be entertainment. And especially the Olympics, we want the best people to go, and they re- represent America. They well, represent all of us to go and try their best and try to win against the rest of the country. Exactly. And even yep. the Olympic creed is like we're all coming together in peace. We're all coming together, uh, you know, in goodwill because uh, we all have a basic humanity. And now where we're at is like, so a couple stories all linked together. One is uh, there's a tennis player, last name is Osaka. She's done pretty well. I think she's won a couple Grand Slams, but she pulled out of one of the recent Grand Slams because she said, you know, stress-wise, she couldn't handle the mental health. Yeah. Okay. 
that's fine. I don't mind that. But then she tries out to go to the Olympics for Japan. I think she's like half Japanese, half American. And she just quit because she said it was just too stressful. And then you also have uh, this girl, Simone Biles. Uh, she's a young gymnast, and she's been probably top of the gymnastics game for several years now. I've, I've heard of her prior to the last couple of years. And she just came out and said, I was so inspired by reading this girl, Osaka, is talking about her mental health. I also have to quit and cannot compete at the Olympics now. And I'm like, as much as I can also understand her point of view and the pressure, I have to think you didn't know this going into it. Right. You didn't know this going into the Olympics, trying out for the Olympic team. There wasn't pressure there. There was like... At the end of the day, there it, are girls who spent their whole lives uh, preparing for the Olympics who tried out and lost to her and didn't right. get to go. And now they get to sit at home watching TV, watching her quit. And pressure is part of it, isn't it? Isn't that what you rise to as a competitor? Um, isn't that the, like part of the, the ideal that, that you're aspiring to? Is uh, And so that is re it's really interesting because when you first mentioned that before we started recording – um, you know, I link a lot of the mental health stuff into other areas. Um, one area is red flag laws is, is, a, is a way where due process um, is usurped because of the alleged risk that someone might pose to themselves. And so if they're a risk to themselves or others, you know, red flag laws are starting to become the legal framework for um, having uh, having an accident over there. Sorry, I keep dropping my pen on the mic. I'm just glad that wasn't a firearm because I, I could be dead right now. But but we're not we're not armed in um, in this podcast. Um that's only when we leave to go to communist Missoula outside the doors. We arm ourselves as individuals. Just kidding. Just kidding. That's a uh, satire. Pick up that sarcasm algorithm. Um, anyways, um, what was I saying? We're um, talking about the Olympics. Well, and, and, and mental health, mental health specifically. And so, um, you know, this idea of the victim card, you know, this is maybe part of an identity. And we, I don't want to judge legitimate situations in which people are struggling the way that sort of the the public statements are being made you're you're getting some kind of influence out there in the public mind um and so um there there's other aspects I, i'm thinking also the county attorney's office here in missoula and the work that kirsten pabst is doing on a national level with vicarious trauma right and so vicarious trauma is something i've experienced as, as a service provider you're working in um, a situation with people in crisis sometimes atrocious things i mean I've, i walked into an apartment with a baby um and and multiple adults that were not having the baby's best interest in mind okay um you know these are hard things to see and experience the way that the victim card though is being potentially used in different ways i think is worth talking about and so when the Olympics and these these incredible competitors are making these public statements about these struggles and you link it to some other issues in which mental health is like the justification for no longer having due process or uh, removing firearms or the justification for, um, you know, who they are prosecuting and who they're not prosecuting. It's so hard to have that job. You know, what was me? Um, don't criticize us for, you know, our omitting to prosecute dangerous criminals kind of thing. So when well, you think about culturally, like on Saturday Night Live, there was a skit that came out in the last year and it's like millennial Star Trek and uh, one of the millennial girls is just at the console and they're they're dealing with this black hole and there's like this red alert going on and then she pipes up some suggestion like, did you try to turn it off and turn it back on? And they're like, what are you talking about? We're in the middle of emergency. She's like, oh my God, my feelings. And she runs out the door, okay? 
Oh, that's fine. Talking about Danny Carlino, Simone Daniel, Biles. Daniel, Daniel, Sorry. Daniel. But, Give but a do name. you understand what I'm yes, saying? Yes, this yes, is yes. a cultural thing it of is. this generation across a different fields where they have now been given in order to help them better address their mental health, they've also begun the alternate, which is if maybe they don't want to deal with something, they can just claim it's a thing to their mental health. We've almost become like over-medicalized in this self-diagnosis uh, that we're doing. Um, there's a really good book by a guy named Nassim Tlaib called Anti-Fragile. Um, oh, interesting. Have you heard of this one? I have heard of it. I'm not too familiar with it. So there's another one called Grit I also read. Basically, the premises of these is that human beings are things which are made better and stronger by actual resistance, by actually trying things right, right. and getting better. So you go to the gym, you pick up something that's a little bit heavier than what you can do, you know, lift it 10 times the next week, you can lift five more pounds, et cetera, et cetera. So things going on in your life, you know, if it's not completely overwhelming, like really bad abuse or something that completely breaks you down mentally where you don't recover, uh, then a lot of tough experiences actually make you stronger and make you able to better with tough experiences right. in the future, even tougher experiences. Absolutely. Um, and this is sort of the issue I think we're having is a lot of us, especially you and I grew up with situations where we were allowed to fail constantly. Yeah. And a lot of the failures that we have have probably made us better people in a lot of ways. But if you're a younger person, you know, I think of the life of like an Olympic gymnast. They probably, a lot of them are probably homeschooled because they have to spend like 8, 10, 12 hours a day in the gym. They have to pay a trainer. They have to pay for the gym. You know, there's a lot of money that goes way into being an Olympian yeah. before you ever like get on that stand and win a medal, assuming you even do. Um, a lot of people have sold their Olympic medals because they're so far in debt. There's just these situations where, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's... <sighs> Well, this it seems very protected, this sort of class of people. Who in the hell thinks you can message someone on Facebook and say, you need to say Daniel instead of Danny? And who in the fuck is a public person running for office who thinks that's going to be the difference on whether they win their election or not? It's just like people seem to exist in these bubbles and have these beliefs that to me seem preposterous and just completely out of touch, but they 100% believe all of it. Well, you know, <clears throat> one of the things... <clears throat> Goodness gracious. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is, is, is how if you're resisting something, you don't become the thing that you're resisting. Um, because I hear some of that, that oppositional rhetoric and language among people that are afraid of the threat that they feel like they're facing from authoritarian medical interventions that, that, that they might not agree with. Okay. So people that feel like their autonomy, um, over their body in relation oh. to, to this stuff, you know, they, they start talking about the enemy almost and not, not, explicitly the enemy but like you know those people and so you have that rhetoric on both sides that's further dividing people and creating this sort of gulf and chasm right well um i don't know if i mentioned see we we record on a tuesday so so it, it was interesting because last tuesday we're talking about a post that i wrote about a poet um since then someone someone made a comment that said it was the stupidest thing they've ever read and they're actually a fantasy writer so it's kind of funny but um later that day you and I and other people were at a potluck, and you know I was there with the person that like made some some criticisms that you know I could take very personally, get very angry about. Um, obviously, stuff to do with my family is pretty personal. I, I'm almost reluctant to be too, you know, to write and talk about it too overtly. But I feel like it's getting to the point now in the next weeks and months. The school's kind of getting close. I'm going to be talking more about this stuff, but. You know, here's someone that I, I really value his perspective. I value both him and his, his partner. 
Um, and, and so we ended up having a great social engagement, right? Um, because certain topics were just, I think, unspoken. Um, we had an unspoken agreement that, you know, let's just have a good time and engage socially. I don't know how possible that's, that's going to be. How, yeah, how me, it, yeah. Did you see the Tucker Carlson thing? Maybe we can talk yeah. about this and then wrap up. Yes, please. Let's do it. Okay. Yes. So on Friday, uh, Billy McWilliams is a guy who owns a porn shop in Bozeman. Um, it's called Eratique. Um, I've Ooh. known the guy for a long time in the early two thousands, I was a HIV and hepatitis C outreach worker. And so they used to have porno booths back there. And so if you know what that is, is there a little booth? Glory hole kind of stuff. Yep, exactly. Uh, so it was a point of contact for me cause I had a huge bag of condoms. I got to try to give them out to what's considered at, at risk population. Yep. So if you're sticking your dick or mouth in the hole anonymously you know, I, in a wall, that's probably a candidate. For I you. used to do some, um, some, I, I brought along a, a open aid Alliance um, person doing outreach and with it, we went to motels to do some outreach cause we knew sex work is happening in these places. Very interesting. I mean, I just got a little glimpse, but um, but you have that as a job. That's, that's cool. Yeah. I, open aid, I think they used to be, it was Montana Target AIDS prevention. They try not to use AIDS and, and some of that stuff in the, yeah, the yeah. branding anymore. But um, so this guy advertises a hotel. Tucker, he's like, Tucker Carlson is saying at the Element Hotel in Bozeman. Hey, just everyone should know. Oh, really? I, now, I don't know how he knew this. I do know the guy generally that he does a lot of work downtown. He's worked downtown for 20 plus years, so he has a lot of contacts there. That's doxing. Um, that's 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 doxing someone. It is doxing. It's it's deliberately trying to get the guy harassed. And not 24 hours later, we have a video from some a-hole confronting Tucker Carlson in a fly fishing shop saying, you're the worst person ever. Uh, you're, you're, you know... So there is a, this in liberals mind, they have the right to almost exclusively because of their beliefs, do anything possible up to and including violence to you. Yeah. So if you're a right wing guy and you just go on vacation in Montana uh, and someone sees you in a fly shop or advertises your location so people will harass you. How did he put that out there? Was it Twitter, Facebook? Yeah, yeah it's right on Twitter. He like people wow. responding to it. I, I posted it on my Twitter. So the thing was, I had wow. a lady. I said, this is shitty. This guy doesn't deserve to be harassed. This is doxing. And and uh, I wanted to read a reply to one of them. This is Ski Mom. I don't know who it is. Most of the people I interact with Twitter on the left are like anonymous with like profile pictures of nature or sock, their cats. Sock or, puppet. Yeah. So, so Ski Mom. If you're talking about Tucker Carlson, I couldn't agree more. He's actively working to kill my family members and oh friends with this fake anti-mask, anti-vax stance. Some of his viewers have died because of this entertainment which they mistook for journalism okay this woman <laughs> presumably a woman i don't know i've never met him believes that by tucker carlson saying things on tv he is trying to murder her family right. okay this is a justification that all liberals have in their minds that they care at such a global level about the earth about humanity that this gives them license to mistreat individual peoples in any way, up to including harassing them, doxing them. Like I told you if earlier. You're, if you're fighting for your life, yeah. You, yeah. you fight for your life with if, lethal if you force. happen to catch COVID and go to the hospital and you don't vote the right way or get the vaccine, they will come to your hospital bed and try to embarrass you on national news. It's like... You have such zero, you're, you're supposed to represent common people. The whole reason that guy is in there not trusting a vaccine is because of how much you lie and how much little yeah, he yeah. trusts anything that comes out of your mouth. And you want to come out and shame him and you think that's going to change his mind. Well, no, you're just hardened. The, the guy to his credit sitting there in a hospital bed with a tube up his nose saying, no, I don't think I would get the vaccine. I'm like, good for you, dude. So, Tell that guy to go fuck himself. He, 
It's it's basic humanity they're abandoning in in favor of this puritanical self righteousness and like purity. It yeah. makes me sick. And it, as much as I I really feel strongly, strongly, strongly about our current mayor Engen, I feel very strongly that he needs to not be in power to the point where if we need to even have like term limits at some point. My goodness, right? But um, at some point, I think it was during like the the Black Lives Matter stuff last summer. Um, there were protests, I believe, and I'll have to double check on this. That went to his residence. Um, I do not support that, no matter how much I don't. Maybe like that's why he moved. Okay, candidate. I can figure out in going through the finance reports because he bought a house uh, down in the South Hills uh, in April of this year, just a few months ago. I and would not be surprised. I moved to the county in part because a mentally ill woman sent me dozens of letters to my residence in the Slant Street neighborhoods, and so um, the fact that someone knows where I live was a motivating factor to me. Finding a new place to live. Um, and I'm, of course, privileged. And we bought into this insane housing market 20 years ago. And so um, part of why, you know, we were able to sort of do what we did. Um, but I don't support, you know, Angen um, doing that. And there's been a couple of times where I've seen like Josh Slotnick buying a taco downtown. Because I'm walking around downtown day and night. And um, I see people. And I've been tempted to be like, I'm coming for you 2024. I'm going to run against you, Josh. And I'm just like... These people need to have unmolested moments in their day to day when they're out getting food. You know, but like there's a, the, there's a time. There's a time and a place. They don't believe that you get to live like a normal human. Well, okay, I shouldn't say all of them. Of course, but right. I will say the fact that so many of them just sit. This is what really bothered me. It bothered me about the protests downtown. Yeah, there would be a couple of shitty people, bad apples, and they would get in my face, and all the rest of them would just sit there and look. It's yeah. like, do you have any principles whatsoever that would just uh, say uh, politics aside? Don't treat another human being like dog shit. Like, I, okay, I don't like Von Dean Kopetsky. Okay, I don't know the lady. I'm not especially close with her. Her son, or yeah, her, her son, Mike Hopkins, was our representative. I really don't like the way he's been oh, kind yeah, of a yeah. rhino in the ledge. When, when a guy came up to her and said, you're, you know, a racist cunt, I got in his fucking face. Good Lord, There's man. something basic about me that you don't go to a little old lady and start <laughs> screaming in her face obscenities and wow. putting her down because you're drunk at some some guy did this i didn't see her husband get in this guy's face i didn't see her son get in this guy's face i got my in his face in a friggin santa trump costume and, and maybe that looked absurd but to me <laughs> i was just raised a certain way of like you defend the weak, you defend women, you defend children, you defend the powerless. And when people act out of line, the way that they be told not to act out of line in the first is they, they face some resistance. Yeah, yeah. And if no one is up there at even a basic level saying, you need to treat this other human being with some fucking respect, there is absolutely no reason for you to not be able to give them even basic respect as a human being. Then, then you know, where are we at? Are we, are we a civilized country anymore? How are we supposed to go forward when we're so broken like this and half the country thinks it's their right to control every single instant and second of the other half's lives and now the other half is so resentful of it that they're just going nuts? Well, to the point where, you know, I used to be kind of um, worried about the idea of medical apartheid, but now I'm just like, well, you know, 50 states, like you guys call 25, we call 25, I call dibs on Montana. Um, let's move forward in, in, in some kind of segregated medical apartheid situation because I respect people's fear. I've done a lot to try and minimize fear. That's one of the measurements I use with um, a lot of information I get exposed to is like, is it causing a fear reaction in me? And then I question if, if it's intentional or unintentional. Um, because fear is a real serious, I think, you know, psychological uh, thing that, that, that can really have physiological impacts on your, on your own personal health. 
Um, and I think can cause people um, to to react to things in pretty strong ways. And I was even thinking back when I was criticizing the um, International Resettlement Agency opening up in Missoula. You know, at the time I was working at the Pavarella Center, but I found myself in this weird space of having to sort of say, hey, um, if people are expressing frustration at this, it's because it's probably some level of economic anxiety that they are experiencing that is making them fearful. And when they see a different group of people being yeah. being selected um, for sort of like beneficial treatment, um, and they see their their status eroding, and okay, maybe they're white people, you know, calling them hateful, xenophobic, racist people only pushes them further into sort of extreme mentalities, and then you have this like you know kind of gotcha you know liberal media that then is just you know unable to even hide their disdain and ridicule in their reporting to the point where they're like, no, it's all good, we're activist journalists now, and uh, like the, all those people at January sixth, those are all like insurrectionist, dangerous, like terrorists. And we, we need to like use every kind of snitch item culture, you know, that we can, um, even Legos. I, I don't know if we brought it in. Um, I, I don't know if it was you or someone that sent me that they used, a um, the FBI confiscated this guy's yeah, Lego set that. of the Capitol building. Like that makes it personal. I, you know, I might have to lose any shred of objectivity because about, Legos, man, don't come. Okay. At, let, at Legos. Let's say when I hear a story like that, I get mad. And the reason I get mad is because I know a lot of people who are really struggling to get by and just find housing. Yeah. Um, I, I can probably have about a dozen different people I've talked to in the last three months that are looking for a place to live or struggling to afford basic housing. When I hear you know, a friend of mine in Missoula is paying $1,700 a month for a two-bedroom because they had to move suddenly and that was the only thing that was available, you know, I think, why does this person from Africa get to have free housing and a house built for them? Like, if you're up in the South Hills and you're in a nice place and you afford all your bills, and, you, and everyone around you is doing well, then it makes sense. Oh, let's bring people here and help them in this prosperity I'm experiencing. But if you're on the other side of the coin of like, I know people struggling, then it it's, has nothing to do with the actual situation or maybe even the people involved. It has to do with the perspective or why would we bring people here if we haven't solved these problems? Or right, why right. not bring people here if, we, if it's so great? It's really just based on where you're at. You can see it completely two different ways. Yeah. And um, the thing that we really truly can end on, since we always like to say we're ending, but it's so much fun talking and we don't have enough we opportunities. Forever, man. I, I, I got know. lots of memory on this computer. Um, <laughs> excellent. Well, I, I do want to, to, to wrap it up, but um, some, some information that's not being reported anywhere else yet. Um, the, so the song that, that we listen to, uh, I mentioned Kustra. And anyone listening that doesn't you know, know that, that's like, what the hell is a Kustra? Is it like something on Mario Brothers? No, no. Barbara Kustra is someone I've written about. She was a former director of the Art Museum at the University of Montana. Um, she left that position after growing the collection from 15 mil to $30 million. Um, and through my sort of investigation, um, I realized that when Daniel Carlino's housing was um, compromised because his month-to-month -month lease was terminated without sort of any notice. Um, it was Barbara Kustra was the landlord. Yeah. And so um, I haven't really seen him make any like issue um, other than send me a private message wanting me to remove that post. And I was like, no, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't even respond to that. Um, but 
I have since learned that Daniel Carlino did get into housing. So he is back into housing in his ward. Um, oh, I presume if he's doing his campaign going yeah. forward, he would have resolved it. I just, I haven't seen that reported anywhere yet, but I, I, I don't know why he hasn't made it more of an issue, but that's partly because, you know, when you are someone that is um, kind of opposing the, the political establishment, when he's criticizing tax increment financing moderately, when he's doing some of his moderate criticisms, um, there are real retaliation uh, things that are that are happening to to people like him, and so um, I don't know if his if his campaign will make an issue of of political retaliation. Isn't um, it interesting that a candidate can have such a like? If you talk to most people in Missoula County, I think they would say the housing issue is the number one issue that we oh, need yeah. to deal with above everything else. And yet this guy experiences that directly on the most personal, vindictive level. And he still wants to talk about climate change. Okay. So, so are you yeah. a religious person just preaching this religion? Are you just telling people what they want to hear to get elected? Or you want to be a genuine person talking about your own well, experiences maybe, and why they're important? Maybe he's just internalized the, the hatred he should have for himself as a white male um, who I think is heterosexual since that's all so important, you know, to, to these virtue signalers. Um, so maybe he just feels like he deserves it to a certain extent to have a woman in power um, take away his ability to have a roof over his head. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I can only speculate. But um, if it was me, I can I can safely say that I would I would make a big deal. Um, and maybe I'd even write a song, including. <laughs> <laughs> I or, like your songs, Travis. I don't know why you. people. My family doesn't like some of my music. You know, I output. tell people we do a podcast. I probably told like 10 people. I don't think one person has asked me, oh, how can I listen to that? Not my spouse, <laughs> not my family. I'm like, oh, yeah. I keep, just, I don't know if they just assume I just talk nonsense, word, nonsense words most of the time because I talk about like stats and stuff. But my wife isn't listening either, so it gives me the freedom to to talk about our yeah, our challenges. I because hate my husband; he's such a bitch. Like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> our, 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 what if we just had a whole podcast talking how awful our family was? Our romantic partners hear us enough, um, and because we yeah, are great conversationalists, true. they they have heard our spiel enough. That's that's why I was I was at this meeting. Um, I'm and again, we are going to wrap this up, but we're just highlighting our our great ability to, to talk. Um, I am self-aware enough that I realize that I am overwhelming and that I do benefit from being restrained. And so um, a bunch of people I never met, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, they've never like, you know, experienced the force that is me. And so I got a nudge at one point and uh, my, my friend kind of did the like, you know, lowering, like kind of lower your participation thing. And and I had to kind of apologize. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I just, I, you know, I do need to be restrained. Um, because I'm just kind of excited and passionate about all this uh, information rattling around in my head. And I've been so disappointed about what the local media is actually doing. Um, this is what I've wanted to do for years and years and years. And it actually does put on a lot of stress um, to my romantic partner who's like, okay, you're kind of living your dream. And, um, and at some point with this content creation, um, I have a lot of faith that, that there's going to be some, some interesting stuff down the road. But even after last night, I think there might be a sponsor interested or willing to to do some things. And and I know that the, the climate of fear that I've encountered in trying to get people more involved and engaged, um, I felt that early on. But now I'm feeling more people coming out of the woodworks to get in, engaged, to become more informed and educated. Not necessarily happy even with the array of four candidates. And I think I think they are going to be great targets for our puppet show, which we need to talk off 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 air about maybe how we, we bring to life. 
should go to the city club debate. Where is, I, I don't even know what city club is. Is that like city, a, it's, um, it's a monthly, monthly thing that, um, so it's like city, Toastmasters so, or something. It's an organization that I think actually Susan Haypatrick of United Way is pretty heavily involved in now in terms of the so structure leadership of, of, you know, picking the topics. Um, but it, it's a great forum to, to get informed on local issues and I'm very interested to see how it, how it um, shapes out. So yeah, let's see what we can maybe do even in the field or, or, you know, on scene, but we'll be limited, but I think it is inside. So, um, yeah. And look, the other thing is, is fire and smoke and heat. I mean, let's just make up some fake media passes. I have this really ridiculous, um, I have a name tag from my old. I'm just talking old timey voices. Aging services. I, so I, I hear you're running for mayor. See, I glued Legos onto my name, my name tag. So that that could be something that we can do. But um, we're gonna continue every Tuesday. You know, at least having a conversation, putting it out for people to listen to. Um, we are wrapping it up now, and so I'll say if you want to get in touch with me, you can hit me up at willskink at yahoo.com. That's w i l l s k i n k at yahoo.com. I also am getting familiar with Telegram. So I'm talking to some folks on Telegram and you ever follow on Twitter? No, no, Tim, no. You, T A T Adams MT, but you're more active on Twitter, even though you feel mental health impacts yourself. Right. Eh, I don't really take any of it personally. It's just like pissing in the wind most of the time. So it's just a discouraging forum to see things. I guess I got, yeah, I, I am a person who craves engagement, who craves like thoughtful conversation. Yeah. Like, look, I, and to just, what in my opinion is to be in the middle of a rigid ideological religious war of, of two groups of people who are equally like stubborn in their position. I just feel like an outcast. There is a lack of engagement in a crossing of ideas. Um, but we're going to, we're going to help change that. So tune in next week. You're listening to zoom town. I'm your host, Travis Matier, Tim Adams, rocking it on the other side of the table coming from downtown Missoula, Montana, Please tune in and please get engaged. Do what you can. Get informed. Until next time.